Welcome back or welcome to another episode of the On Coaching Podcast with Steve Magnus. That's me and John Marcus. So this week we have a a special edition. So my new book, The Passion Paradox, is just releasing. Um, So if you haven't bought one or checked it out, please do so. Uh, It greatly helps if you do so on on launch week and launch day. We have some really cool pre-order items up at our website, passionparadoxbook.com, which uh, will be in the show notes as well. So take advantage of that. So this week we have, as I said, a special episode. Um, We were fortunate to record a conversation with Dave Epstein, myself, and Brad Stolberg, who is my co-author on the book, The Passion Paradox. So John won't be on this. We'll, he'll be back next week. But we thought it was such a worthwhile conversation that we'd play it up for you guys here on the podcast and give you guys this special look. Um, because it's it's rare that you get someone like Dave Epstein, who's the author of The Sports Gene, one of the best books on uh, sports and performance that you can check read. And Dave also has an upcoming book called Range that is released in April. And Dave's one of the most thoughtful guys on, on sports and performance. He's a former runner at Columbia. So this conversation centers around the ideas in the Passion Paradox, uh, which Dave read and uh, enjoyed, thankfully, but also gets into some um, some aspects of sports performance and also Dave's book Range, which talks about um, how athletes need to not specialize when they're young, but instead dabble in a bunch of uh, uh, sports and have this uh, non-specialization, almost a generalization approach, and uh, delay specialization until later. So a lot of juicy topics in here that I think you guys will really enjoy. So again, if you haven't yet, take a look at the new book, put a lot of work into it, hope you'll enjoy it, but for the next hour and so, I hope you enjoy this conversation again with myself, uh, Brad Stolberg, and then Dave Epstein. All right, guys. So we're here um, on a special, I guess we'll call it, podcast um, with myself, Steve Magnus, my co-author of The Passion Paradox, Brad Stolberg, and our esteemed special guest, Dave Epstein, who has a new book called Range coming out um, soon, which I suggest you guys check out. So welcome, guys. Looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me. So, Dave, what'd you think of the book? I mean, I I enjoyed the book tremendously. Not only, well, you know, because it, it sort of jived with some of the things I was writing about, but also, and I think I mentioned this to you when I first was reading it, Brad, that to me, um, you know, Peak Performance, your last book, I also really enjoyed. Um, but I think it was a different book in the sense that it was sort of taking on some more what I would almost call like concrete performance issues, I guess, where in this, in, in the Passion Paradox, you guys sort of define a question that I think is um, inherently really difficult to get one's hands around, which is one of the reasons why it's a service to the reader to have you define it, um, and is also an issue that's really important to people. Like, how do we balance basically the dark and light sides of intense passion? 
Um, but it's incredibly important to like basically everyone, but also sort of, you know, beyond easy explanation and in some ways beyond the frontier of perfect human knowledge, which means that it's, it's, it's difficult to deal with, but also um, incredibly important, incredibly interesting and takes a book for someone to draw from all these different angles and sort of help, you know, help the reader examine it. And so I sort of felt like the reading of the book was my own, you know, sort of sort of an exercise of, of going through that myself. So it sort of felt like an interactive read to me in that sense, while I was really kind of assessing my own life while I was reading it. Oh, that's so that's so great to hear that. Um, that's how it felt for us writing the book in many ways. Uh, we we certainly when we started the book did not have this figured out and we still probably we might have it intellectually figured out a bit more, but it doesn't mean we practice it all the time. But um, yeah, we, we wrote this book because we felt very similarly. We actually we finished peak performance pretty early. And Steve and I uh, had gotten together to go through edits, but um, our editor at the time was backed up on other projects, so he, d- he didn't have the edits for us ready. And both of us, first-time authors with a major publishing house, we heard that the first draft was great. We had 10 days in person, and rather than like celebrate or go do fun stuff, we got super restless. And by day two, mm. we're like, oh, we, got, we might as well start on the next book. And granted, this book hadn't even been edited yet. And... We weren't sure what topic to address. And on day three, we kind of turned like the mirror on ourselves and we're like, well, wait a minute. Like, why can't we just relax? Why are we so itching, you know, to write the next book? And then we said, well, we're really driven. And Steve got to talking about his running career. And I, I talked a little bit about my work at McKinsey out of school. And we, we, we have this like similar temperament, which is push, 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 go, go, go. And my wife is in the other room, like, send Steve back to Houston. We should go on vacation. And that's when we got to thinking, like, well, this drive and this passion, it's definitely a gift, but can it also be a curse? And is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Um, You know, Steve Steve mentioned, I'm not going to mention your names, but at one point in Steve's life, Steve had a roommate that uh, would kind of work a nine-to-five job, come home, watch TV, just like very much routine, kind of almost going through the motions. And at first we're like, oh, we wouldn't want to be like that. But then at times we kind of envy that because wouldn't it be nice to just be content? Uh, so that was the genesis of this book, like wrestling with these questions. So I'm glad, it's a long winded way of saying, I'm glad that, that you felt that you were in, in the arena wrestling with us. Well, and that's, that, that's interesting to hear that it developed so organically for you guys and so quickly, you know, as someone who's going to you know, whose, whose agent told him, just don't let it be five years before your next book. And now it's going to have been six. Um, I, I applaud you guys on that. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that it developed so organically that way, because I think like we hear, you know, passion is in so many conversations. You can almost watch any sporting event or, you know, go to any, any conference about performance and, and you hear people talking about passion, but for the amount, um, of discussion that there is about the passion sort of generally, it's kind of remarkably superficial. Um, for the most part, there's not a lot of, there's almost no even acknowledgement of potential downside and, and of the need to sort of walk this tightrope that you guys outline in the book. Um, which is interesting because it, it almost seems sort of obvious once you start thinking about it, right? Like for sure. Um, there have been times in my own career and I'm sure everyone's where they are like more driven by passion and having more professional success, but that doesn't actually mean that they are 
the happiest or doing the work that's the best fit for them and all those things. So it's, it's, it's interesting because I think you hit on something that um, once you start reading it in the passion paradox, you're like, gosh, of course we should be thinking about both facets, but, but we mostly haven't been. Yeah, that's, it's funny. Cause like when we, when we got about to like, you know, researching this topic during that first kind of week that we, we were together and, and mulling it over, we had that same kind of thought is it's like, well, why in the world? Like once we stepped back and had these conversations, like it was Brad and I in his living room, just having these conversations with really no idea or thought that the book was going to be about this, but just, you know, it was interesting. So we were having these conversations on like passion and, and, you know, how we couldn't turn it off and why are we so, you know, push, push, push all the time. And it got us thinking, it was like, wait a minute, like, why in the world does the world passion generally have a, a very positive connotation to it, right? And yeah. it got us, like, researching, like, w- well, was it always this way? Because, like, the only other mention of passion that we're aware of is, like, the biblical one, right? Passion right. of the Christ. And it's like, well, how did we get from that to this? And I, yeah. I remember distinctly, like, putting the words like find your passion or follow your passion in in that google ingram device that lets you like search the you know <laughs> yeah. frequency and it's like not at all until like the 1970s or 80s or something like that and it just like spikes through the roof and you're just like whoa like what happened like how did how did we make this switch so you know it's it's just an interesting kind of journey to go from uh again something that was tied up in suffering at, at first with Christ and then um suffering in general to something that is like almost like the ultimate goal right whenever i thought of passion initially i was like oh that's that's college graduation speech right go yeah. go find your and follow your passion like do something passionately and you know the longer you think about it you're like well that might not be that good of advice that is, and, and it's also, it's like not even, it's like borderline not even advice in a lot of ways, right? And you're sort of like, what do, what does that mean really, even in, in reality? Um, it, it's like a, it's like a, you know, like an unfunded mandate that the government does. Like, go, go, go make yourself better, but like nothing about like, how is that supposed to work or what does it even really mean? And by the way, speaking of that part of the book where you trace some of the history, I mean, I really like it. I've gotten into history quite a bit more than I was um in the past couple of years and find it's always kind of delving into the history of ideas is a really good way to sort of understand cultural change. Um, so like that, you know, I'd be, I'd be interested to hear you sort of elaborate on that finding a little bit more even because it's unusual, right? We don't like passion of the Christ is a very well-known phrase, but again, we don't really stop to think about how the meaning of that word has sort of changed and what that has to say about, about cultural change. Right. So I found that, that history aspect, even though I sort of, you know, even though I sort of knew that that was an older use of the word passion, I hadn't really stopped to think about it and, and how much it's changed. Um, well, it, it's interesting Dave, because like it changed. And then again, it really has. Um, and that's, that's the double-edged sort of passion is, is Pasia was the, the root and that's Latin, and it's suffering, and that's the suffering of the Christ. And then over time, what we found is that the world gradually evolved from suffering related, particularly to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, to just the more general suffering. So 
but it was still had a very negative connotation. Uh, and then in around the 1500s, it's, it's shifted towards desire. And eventually Shakespeare used it in, in, in a romantic way. So uh, to have the passion for someone, to have the desire for them, perhaps someone that you can't have. So still very closely related to suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how it's kind of gradually transitioned out of this purely negative suffering to more of a positive love connotation. And then it wasn't until really the 1960s and 70s that it took on a meaning of a more general zeal for something. But what's interesting, and, and that's why in the book we try to be really um, particular about tracing the origins of passion, both historically and biologically, because the neurochemicals that are most associated with passion are those that are also associated with addiction, right? Mm -hmm. And what is addiction if not suffering? So to be really passionate about, oh, let's say a big goal, making the Olympics, that, that is, that's very different than feeling content. And if you get there, that's great. But if you don't, there can still be a lot of suffering wrapped up in that. Um, so that was really interesting to us. Yeah. And, and one more thing. And since I couldn't expand on it in the book, uh, but I'll expand on it now is I think it's, it's really interesting as some of the history that we, we left out of the book, um, mm -hmm. and some of those transitions that again, I'm more of a history buff, uh, or fanatic than I think Brad, um, it was the one subject that I was interested in school growing up. <laughs> Um, besides running, um, but the, 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 <laughs> yeah, cool. the major change. So what was really interesting, the major change from like just suffering of Jesus to suffering of any kind actually happened when, again, for our history bus, when William the Conqueror, like took, went from Normandy over and conquered it, what we now call England. Right. <laughs> and that changed it from like suffering of jesus in this religious context to suffering of any kind right so you have the, like this major event that coincides with like a, hi a major historical um thing and then what was also interesting as brad mentioned shakespeare but like one of the other people to use and i guess change the meaning that we know of in history was jeffrey chaucer who wrote the uh famed canterbury tales and he took it from like this negative suffering of any kind to converting it to an overpowering like feeling of emotion. So it's not only again from a, a interesting um you know how we got here but it's really cool to see that like major figures of history played I think again according to our research uh, a major role in this evolution of the word and and that William the Conqueror did did William the Conqueror like use it or was it used to to describe you know no, his ambitions yeah, or yeah so what happened there is the word changed based on the intermixing of uh, yeah, the two okay. languages that occurred because of like him conquering that area. Steve, for 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 readers, if you've already read the book, you can either um, hate on me. For, for, for that not being in there or thank me because Steve had like 30 pages worth of history. And I just remember emailing him being like, is William the Conqueror? That sounds like, like my neighbor's cat. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve will be happy because William the Conqueror is also mentioned in range. So <laughs> um, there, there we go. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that, that is though. It's just the, 
You know, the whole thing, I think one of the very basic things that like, since we're, we're talking sort of about definitions and the, and the evolution of the definition of passion that, that will happen to anyone who reads the book, um, or most people will be sort of stopping to think about what they even think passion means, not like in the different, you know, dictionary definition or sort of the, the graduation speech, find your passion, but, but what does it mean to them? Is it finding something they're obsessed with? Because if that's the case, like, I think we mostly would acknowledge that obsession, you know, pretty much always has a dark side because that's more toward addiction. Is it something, but you know, is it something that they just enjoy doing? And I don't think it's just something that they enjoy doing. Um, so I think it's really, you know, you guys are, um, uh, sort of opening a discussion on something that everyone has an interest in and everyone has some familiarity with, but that we just don't think very hard about very often. Yeah. And you know, I don't know if you found this, but I think that's, that's almost the way it is for things that are kind of ingrained in us culturally and that we kind of take for granted, right? Um, yeah. When things are so familiar, then we just kind of, you know, um, almost pass them off as being like, oh, yeah, passion. Like, I get this. Like, in, in sport, you see the same thing with, like, mental toughness. It's like, oh, yeah, mental toughness. Like, that's important. I know what that is. But, like, if you step back and you think about it, you're like, oh, like, actually, this is way more nuanced and way more deep. And, like, our passing superficial understanding of it doesn't give us much clarity at all. So I think that... You know, it, it's almost like that uh, to a large degree with a lot of things. And Steve, so as a coach, like, you know, you coach one of the best house track teams in the country. Do you, did you in the past or do you now? I mean, do you use passion in like your pep talks or talking to athletes? Does it change anything? Is that a word that would come up in, in your coaching? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think early on, yeah. I mean, it's almost like... In your head, you think like, oh, we've got to cultivate like this passion, which means that, you know, uh, you got to, however you define it, like you got to be in, engaged and like have this be a major part of your life and like all that stuff. Um, but more so now and after reading this book, like I look at it as almost like more of what are what is driving you and how is that driving you in a in a hopefully uh, good or you know, possibly negative way. And I look out more for the things that, you know, we talk about in this book in terms of potential things that could indicate that like you're going down this dark side in terms of like a motivation <laughs> style that isn't sustainable, right? So we do, you know, for, for the longest time, I've had one-on-one -on -one conversations with incoming student athletes on you know what drives them and then done like validated questionnaires on like internal versus external motivation just to get an idea and you know more so recently is i look at things like oh this person is like heavily externally motivated or was in a high school program that like had a, a very demanding coach which when you have a very demanding coach in high school you you tend to develop a, uh, a motivation based on like almost like pleasing the coach, like doing mm -hmm. what he asks, like it's very external and, and being like, oh, this is a little bit of a warning sign of, you know, now that this athlete is in a college environment where he has more freedom and more choices and more control like that, that type of motivation might not be sustainable. 
Oh, that's really interesting. You actually like apply it in, in that way. Um, because, and, and I'm going to take in a little tangent here, but, um, one of the other interesting things, you know, I think this relates these sort of light and dark sides of, of passion and motivation. Some of what you do in the book is you take on some, some stories, some, you know, some fairly well-known stories, uh, like Theranos, um, the business story and look at the incredible power of this, like, hotly burning passion and, and and the charisma of it right when someone has this incredible passion i think it's really easy to be drawn to that you know like who isn't drawn to someone who has an incredible passion um but also you know some of the stories you tell are that passion just totally run out of control without any type of regulation without any sort of anchor to any type of values it like almost becomes its own like self-fueling firestorm that nothing can stop and, and all other concerns, um, you know, like the original purpose of an endeavor basically go out the window more or less. Yeah. It, 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 it um, and we really wanted to focus uh, on that. It's a big part of the book because I think that it's, it's almost unavoidable if you're a human with human biology. So you start off doing something because you really like that thing. And then suddenly you get good. So in the case of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, like company starts doing well. And if you become more passionate about that external validation and that result than the thing itself, then when the tides change externally, you're going to do anything that you can to, to reverse course, to feel good. So in the case of Theranos, well, maybe the science isn't going in the direction you want or, or your product isn't working as it should. Instead of taking that failure and going back to the drawing board, that's passion about the activity, about development, about entrepreneurship, about science, you have the temptation to lie, cheat, steal. Um, it, it, there's, there's an interesting parallel in athletics, which is athletes that, and this, in, in the literature, this is the difference between what's called harmonious passion, which is when you love an activity, and obsessive passion, which is when you love the validation that activity brings. And there's... Um, fair amount of literature on athletes that show that those that have obsessive passion are more likely to dope than those that are more harmoniously passionate. And in Elizabeth Holmes, it's really just the, the business version of doping um, on a massive scale. And that, that, that is where passion becomes so dark. Uh, once your sense of self and identity is tied up in the result of what you're doing, then A, even if you're doing really well, it's never going to be enough. And B, if you're not doing really well, you're going to do anything it takes to get back to that place where you are. Um, and for history buffs, like the Buddha called this suffering. And this is in a different, you know, not, not connected to the Latin root Paseo, but the, the, the first noble truth of Buddhism is that suffering exists in the way that the Buddha described suffering was craving for something outside of yourself. And, you know, it's uh, it's really funny when you start to, like, think of and, and talk about this passion and, like, this negative route, like the Elizabeth Holmes or the, the athletes doping is, <laughs> is at first I remember when we were like, oh, we need, like, some stories about this. And you're like, oh, we're going to have to look around. And they just kind of pop up to you, you know, Dave, you actually sent us a, a nice article um, of quotes from presidents on President's Day and, 
you know, D- Donald Trump had this great, <laughs> this great quote about like how you need to be super passionate. Right. And, you know, regardless of your politics, like that, that, you know, ties into this obsessive passion a little bit. And then I remember we were looking at like athletes like, Oh, like we need, we need an example to like highlight this, this research and, and who, who rates like passion as the number one ingredient for success. But like Alex Rodriguez, who's, you know, caught, as as you're well aware of cut doping and like all these different things you know enron like one of their core values was something about or or you know about passion and all that stuff and you're just like wow this this really kind of pops up uh pretty frequently yeah but not yeah and i think it's important real quick to, to add in that um passion's not always just a negative thing it's just that rather than let it, as you said, Dave, rather than let it be this force that takes on a life of its own, it really has to become a practice because humans are wired to crave social validation. That's why social media works so well. And you almost have to work against your own hardwiring to protect that from happening. So you get really good at something and people start recognizing you, that is going to feel good. That's how, that's how you are wired. So it's a practice to let that feel good and celebrate success, but then come back to the thing itself so that your joy and your passion is always around the activity, not what people think about you're doing the activity. So a, a couple things you guys just mentioned relate to something I really liked in the book, um, which was where you wrote about hedonic adaptation um, and that kind of idea that, you know, I, I even, even to broaden it, to think of like once... Um, you know, once something somebody achieves something they like, you, you adapt to it so quickly that going backward from that is suddenly seen as horrible, even though you didn't have it or you weren't there very recently, right? I don't know if that's a reasonable summary. Um, yeah. But I, I was thinking about that, not, not only because, you know, I mentioned this to you, like one of my, my first job in um, in journalism was was as the overnight crime report of the New York Daily News, and I would report to these disasters. And and one of the interesting aspects of it was you would find that people were totally euphoric if they had escaped with their lives, usually. Um, and they would say, you know, I'll never want anything again. I'll, you know, I just want to hug my kids. And and of course, that goes away, right? You adapt, so you have to find ways to kind of like keep yourself from adapting to every level and, and becoming unhappy no matter where you are. But also, you know, you mentioned when people decide to cheat. And, and I've been thinking a lot about when, so I was reading some research about like insider trading and, and the, the, the most likely people to, to do insider trading or to cheat on their taxes are people who go from like a position of basically winning to losing. Um, so even if they're doing better than they were, you know, a while in the past, if they start going from, from winning to losing, basically, they're very likely to start cheating pretty much. It's as if they adapt so quickly. And, and that reminds me of like, you know, I love watching like short track speed skating in the Winter Olympics. And whenever there's a big wreck, it's almost always someone it, it's mm-hmm. it's never like it's it's rarely a person who's like passing and passing too tight. It's the person who's getting past, like moves out and sort of panics and things like that. Um, and so I think there's this sort of when your identity is really wrapped up in those, this sort of panic at at going from a strong position to a weak position, which I totally understand. But also in any long journey, like that's going to happen multiple times. So you kind of have to be equipped to deal with it, I think, without totally crumbling, even if it's not pleasant. Yeah, um, I'll take a stab at this, um, maybe in a slightly different direction. But like you mentioned that short track speed skating, 
you you see maybe not the cheating end of it but you can see the same thing if you watch enough track races uh especially indoor races right and if you watch on the college level especially an athlete leading a pack right and he's like trying to break everybody he's leading and then all of a sudden two or three guys go by him like what generally happens is is that person who is formerly leading doesn't just like oh two or three guys go by by me i need to latch back on and compete what generally happens is they just go backwards right <laughs> they just fade like go from running really strong leading to just fade even if the pace changes a little bit and if you watch athletes enough like you see almost this like panic of like oh gosh i've gone from this like winning and running well to like oh my whole race is kind of over with and i think like that's a good demonstration of like seeing that is there there's something to this aspect of quick quickly going from a position of power or strength to a position of of weakness or losing that has just this like visceral human reaction um that that most of us have and, and it's interesting too because you you you're both talking about in very acute events, but you zoom out, and that is why obsessive passion is associated with burnout. And harmonious passion is not right because if over the course of five years you get really used to winning, and that's what makes you tick, and then suddenly you stop winning, well, it's like you've got these two options, right? You do whatever it takes to win, which often takes you know turns in in the direction of cheating, fraud, lying. Or you suffer from anxiety, depression, and burnout. Um, so it's a really fragile sense of self when you need to be winning or you need to be winning externally at a greater rate than you were before, because eventually you're going to lose. And when that happens, if, if everything falls apart, that's no fun. And so, so what would you guys, because I'm, I'm, I'm sure people will wonder about this, what would you say to people who, who argue, you know, if you, you win a bunch and you lose, that's a problem if you had obsessive passion, but Hey, at least you were winning, you know, like no, no room to be like kind of placid or more stoic, just let the passion burn really brightly while it can. And then, you know, pick up the pieces later, basically like why bother uh, trying to moderate passion in any way? Well, I would say, I mean, I'm a science guy, so I would say like the research is pretty clear that if the passion is associated with the winning or, or any external result for that matter, um, you're setting yourself up for really poor health outcomes. And I know it's hard to take the long-term view when you're in the throes of a passion or that inertia is carrying you, but you can't perform well if you're not healthy. Um, and, 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 and then the other thing that I would say is, is generally speaking, and it depends on the athlete or the business person or what, what, what have you, is if I think about a focus on any external result, even just talking about it, that tends to lead to a tightening, like a feeling of constriction. Um, sometimes it's excitement, but excitement and anxiety are like very close cousins. So I feel tight and constricted. Whereas when I think of a love for an activity, just doing the thing, that tends to feel much more expansive. Most people, not everyone, but most people perform best from that place of expansiveness really hard to perform well when you're tight. And the more that you're focused on winning, the tighter you get. Even if you're excited about winning, the tighter you get. Uh, and I'm, I, I become acutely aware of this in myself, especially with launching a book. There are times when, I don't know, we get a great publicity hit or the, the Amazon sales rank gets into the top 100, you name it. And I catch myself being really excited. But that excited, it feels, I feel my jaw get tense. 
and it feels just very tight. And when I'm tight like that, it's as if my world narrows and I'm sure that I miss stuff. Whereas if I can somehow like let that roll through me and remind myself that, hey, like I really like writing. I like having conversations like this. I love my relationship with Steve. None of that is affected by anything that happens externally. I, I relax into a more open space. Mm. Steve, you can probably like take us out of Zen mode and, and offer something more concrete. <laughs> um, that's, that's how we work together. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I kind of take the, the comparison to addiction, right? It's almost like if winning is what matters and that's what's driving you and that's like the motivation from it, then it's it's just like being addicted to something. And that hedonic a- adaptation that we talked about a little bit there is like uh, eventually that's, that high is not going to be enough, right? And we're going to have to keep pushing um, to get you know a, a new high there. And also like there's going to be some point um, where we stop winning just because that's how life works, whether it's we grow older in an athletic event, competition gets better, or just the, the luck of the draw in the business or whatever world um, where you can't win anymore. Um, and, right. That's and, a really good point that Steve's <laughs> making because it's not just like when you lose. Look at Michael Phelps. I yeah. mean, the dude, all he did was win, and he struggled mightily with depression upon his retirement. It, yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing is like there's, there's going to come to that point. And I think that's the point where is if winning is the main thing, what it does is, you know, pushes you to like if you're in sports, like do drugs to hang on and keep that feeling or in other places like try to replace that feeling. And, you know, it might be why you see in certain sports like a, a decent amount of uh athletes who struggle with things like uh addiction whether to drugs or painkillers or whatever uh post uh post career and and for sort of outside of the sports realm this this hedonic adaptation i think again a really interesting point you guys talk about in the book sort of i see as a as a facet of um you know the road to the the darker side of passion potentially and and just for a for a wider audience, you mentioned, I think Brad, I think it was you mentioned the, you know, with this sort of feedback that you can get online all the time, mm-hmm. whether it's likes or whatever it is on Instagram. And and I, I kind of feel like the companies that make this stuff are building the feedback clearly in such a way as to um, tap into like some of our inherent social passions and just to kind of exacerbate them to the most unhealthy level uh, possible, basically. Yeah, so um, I, I think that you hit the nail on the head. Um, I would argue that Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, their their goal is to keep our attention on the screen as long as possible. And they've engineered a platform that does it by catering to that social passion. Uh, I mean, what, what is a greater reward than being relevant in the world and liked? Um, but the thing is, that like the the relevance and the like that you get on the internet, it's not real relevance in life. So it's almost like it's it's short circuiting our brain, um, and and it's a candy, a, a sugary relevance in liked versus a nourishing one. Um, so what I tell people that are struggling with like the online um, passion for the likes or the retweets or the platform, whatever it is, is like be a celebrity in your local community. 
like be a celebrity with your neighbors, be a celebrity at your coffee shop. Uh, and that, that tends to be a lot more nourishing than chasing whatever it is online. Um, cause that's not real. And yes, like what well, we evolved as social species to be relevant, we evolved to do it in close connection to our communities and the internet doesn't provide that. And I think anyone, myself included, that that uses those those platforms has probably gone through a time when, you know, they tweeted something or they wrote an article and it was doing great and blowing up and you feel really good. And then when that dies down, my experience is you kind of feel gross. It's almost like a bad high. Mm. Um, and you go through, at least I shouldn't say you, but I go, I've gone through that enough times where now I've kind of learned that like, oh, this is going to feel gross. So I'm going to ignore it. Um, yeah. You, sense. you know, Dave, if uh, if at that recent conference we were both at, um, if you weren't busy talking to a guy named Malcolm Gladwell, you would have heard all these answers on the social media panel that I was on. Um, <laughs> I was about to say, you know, you work with young people like you were just talking about this. Like, <laughs> tell us what's up. Well, you know, I'm actually interested. So, I mean, well, I'll tell you my opinion. Then I have a question for you, Dave. Um so I think I think Brad nailed it, right? And I think if we look at uh, the younger generation, um, as they're growing up with these things, where it's like meant, it's almost normal to get these validations. And you know, on the panel I was talking with uh, Sue Bird, a great WNBA player and Olympian, um, <laughs> made this great point about her younger teammates and how it's changed. As she said, people don't know how to shoot the shit anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. So people don't need know how to like converse and like interact in a way because like all their conversation occurs on this social media platform. So I think there's um, multiple uh, different levels of of this. But the way I look at it with my college athletes is that validation is always going to be there and it's only only going to grow. And it's easy for us to sit here as old guys and be like, oh, well, just like turn your phone off for a day or like delete your Twitter. And some people will do that, but the large majority won't. So instead, we need to equip them with the skill set to to be able to like recognize and, and deal with this. Right. And to yeah. like have that ability to like um deal with that urge to grab your phone every five seconds or at the dinner table or like scroll through and you know see how many likes you get all the time right so it's uh it's 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 almost like the way i look at it is every generation has some sort of skill that the previous one took for granted right you know, my my parents always growing up complained about, you know, my skill set for maybe like cooking or doing the laundry or, you know, fixing fixing my car, which I have no idea how to do anything on my car. Right. And that was like taken for granted during my dad's generation. Right. Um, but I think for this one, it's like those skill sets of like interacting, like, you know, how to get validation somewhere else and all that good stuff. But I'm I'm curious, Dave, it's. Going back the five, six years or whenever the sports gene came out where you, you kind of went from this guy who was like a writer to overnight sensation where, you know, Obama's reading your book and calling it one of your favorites. Like what, what was like, what was that like and how did you handle that? I'm so glad you asked that, Steve. I was thinking the same thing. Uh, you know, I was, it was a weird time because I didn't really expect anybody to read the book and I think I have 
like sometimes if I say that, someone's like, oh, yeah, whatever. But I think I have a pretty strong claim to that being true because if I had thought that the book was going to take on the life that it did, um, there is no way I would have been changing jobs right as it came out away from being a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. Uh, which is what I was doing. I'd asked one of my colleagues, you know, how long do I need to deal with this book stuff? Um, and he said about two weeks. And so I took two weeks off starting the day it was published and I started at ProPublica two weeks later. So instantly I was, you know, <laughs> being publicly identified more than I had ever been before as a senior writer at Sports Illustrated while I didn't work there anymore. Um, so it was really strange sort of identity wise. Right. And my new job wasn't so interested in in that. Um, so I was going and trying to find other site, sorts of investigative articles and 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 basically left, you know, a senior, uh, a more senior position for a less senior one because I, I thought I could develop my skills more at ProPublica. And so I was kind of, you know, this book was coming out and sort of blowing up in its own way. And. Meanwhile, I was starting a new job where I was at a lower level and like I have to fight my way up. And it was very strange in that way. Um, and, you know, I was glad um, when, when I wrote the proposal for the book, I uh, it bears no resemblance to the final book um, because the things my intuition turned out to be wrong about a lot of stuff once I researched it more. Um, and so I was glad by the end that. Um, because I didn't have such a clean answer for everything, I kind of felt convinced that people wouldn't read it or wouldn't, wouldn't be easy to market. So I was glad to be able to enter the discussion because I thought the discussion should be more balanced and there should be sort of more there for um, people who wanted to, to examine it in a more balanced way. But it was also kind of like a little bit of a desperate time, honestly, because I was caught between these two worlds you know, traveling for a new job, but also getting all these opportunities that were totally unfamiliar to me um, from the book and suddenly having this like publicly the strongest identity I'd ever had as a sports science writer and in my own life that, you know, nobody was really paying attention to having just moved away from that. Um, mm -hmm. And so it was really tricky. I would not recommend like switching jobs right away when you're <laughs> have a book coming out, especially if like one of the jobs is much more obviously related to the book necessarily. Um, so it was a really difficult, I found it to be a really difficult um, time, honestly. How, how I'm going to push you on this even a little bit harder, Dave. How, how did you handle like the sun fame? And again, like fame is relative, right? It's not like you're, you're Maroon 5 or whatever. But as Steve said, you kind of went from a little known or a lesser known science writer perhaps known very well in very small circles to suddenly someone with a New York times bestselling book, that the president's tweeting about like, did you get that rush of excitement in, in, in what, and if not, or if you either way, what did you do to stay humble and curious so that you didn't get kind of sucked into the inertia of, um, of, of the success of the book? I mean, I'd been at the center of like intense news storms before, you know, like you mentioned a rod, I co wrote the story that, that outed his steroid use. And so I'd been at the, like around very intense news exposure. Um, but, but that's those, so different than like you wrote this book. That's like, you broke a crazy story. Yeah. This is like, this is a brilliant book, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was different and, and it's, it's a good question. I guess like I'm always sort of focused on like what I'm doing on a daily basis. So, you know, I left like, 
you know, what at the time seemed like a prestigious science grad school program to go be like an overnight tabloid reporter. And then when I got a full-time job offer at, at that publication, which was much more well-known, I left for a startup that didn't even exist yet. And then I, once I settled in there, I left to be a temp, from being a real reporter to be a temp fact checker at Sports Illustrated for six months. And then once I caught on there, I left that to join another startup. And so I think I have a history of like not buying into the name of the place I'm writing for that much and being much more concerned with like what I want to learn right now and what I think will improve my skills right now. And maybe like a year from now, I'll reevaluate that. Um, and so I don't think I was ever so oriented toward, um, like, again, I, I wouldn't have left like as a senior writer position at Sports Illustrated to go down the masthead. And, and twice I've left publications where I've then gone somewhere where I start having to call someone and like introduce the place I'm calling from, you know, and like at, at SI, I had a big office over Sixth Avenue. And then I went to just like open desk and, and again, down the masthead. So I, I don't think I was ever like too, um, really worked up about, um, the specific recognition or I would have taken different job trajectories, I think. Yeah. So, so. I I don't really know. I mean, I, I basically wanted what what the, the what I really loved about it is I want autonomy. I want to be able to work on the stuff that I want to work on, and I was glad that it seemed to grant me eventually in the long view that once I could get through like the travel and 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 getting a foothold in my new job would give me autonomy to take on um, a project you know of my own doing next time around. But I don't know. Some of it's such a some of it's such a blur. But like you also realize that like it, it's it's wonderful because people engage with books on on a really deep level, um, and share their stories and things like that. But also like, I'm only, I'm the only one like living with my head every day. And that's like the most important thing for me to grapple with kind of. Yeah. It's, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. I mean, that, 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 that seems almost exactly, um, what our research bared out for this book, which is that one of the best ways to, uh, kind of avoid the trappings of obsessive passion and success is just to get back to the work. Because the more time that my guess is if you would have like spent a lot of time just reading reviews and refreshing your Twitter and like, I'm the man, I wrote this book, then your brain's going to adapt to that. And like, that's what your focus is going to be. And you're going to need more of it. Whereas if you kind of quickly acknowledge like, oh, like, I kind of feel like the man today and I wrote this book, but tomorrow, like, I got to get back to the drawing board because I'm interested in ideas, not the success then your brain, like, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. And like, that's, that's what you're practicing. That's how your brain's going to, going to wire. So for for people listening, I think Dave gave some really great advice, which is like, yeah, celebrate. And like, there's a like success in a capitalist country, like gives you autonomy and that's important. But like, once you have that autonomy, great, like use it to do the work, not to sit there and gloat about what you've done. Yeah. And I I mean, and I didn't have a choice because I was trying to catch on with this, this new job, but that, that's always been, I mean, I, I got into journalism specifically because I wanted to write about sudden cardiac death in athletes. And I specifically wanted to do it for Sports Illustrated. And once I did that, you know, that sort of got me interested in genetics. And then I wrote the book. But the reason I was leaving Sports Illustrated when the book came out is because with that sort of goal behind me, just doing the next story never really kind of felt like um, enough, no matter where it was. I didn't really, I cared much more about what I was doing than than where it was. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, and I guess, I guess there was, there was a point where, you know, again, I didn't know if anyone was going to read the book. And then there was this review in the wall street journal before it came out and I was ecstatic about it. And the publisher said, Oh, that's great. There were like this many pre-orders after that review. And it was like a much smaller number than I expected, not knowing if any more publicity would come. 
And so I said, like, don't ever, unless I ask, like, please don't ever tell me again. And I never asked again. Um, and I was sort of glad to have stayed away from some of that because it's totally out of my control. And I know I was going to work as hard as I could at the things that I can work at. And the rest of the stuff, I just, um, you know, I'm going to put plenty of pressure on myself. So I kind of, if I could, tried to, tried to stay away from the other, other sources of pressure because I don't need, like, a, a fire lit under me um, by any stretch. So I, I was glad to kind of stay away from some of that stuff. That is like a fantastic example of self-awareness on like who you are and like what drives you and like what you need to do. We need to start taking some lessons from you because, uh, you know, um, <laughs> that's why we got to go hiking the day the book comes out. We're listeners. We're recording this a little bit early. And when peak perform, like I'm, I'm all about being in the arena and being vulnerable. When peak performance came out, um, I'm like, okay, like I know that I'm going to get this dopamine rush, but like, I at least want to go down to the gym and like, do, do a workout and we were in the gym for like two minutes and i'm on the treadmill i'm like steve steve like look at all the people tweeting about the book and like next thing i know i'm falling off the treadmill um and again like it was a very contracting back to what i said earlier a very contracting experience like the world narrowed and afterwards you feel kind of gross um so yeah like this time around steve we should we should take advice from dave and we should go on a hike and just talk about ideas and look at the trees that, that's funny that the day that the A-Rod story came out, I I went and like without before like turning on the TV or anything, like went with my girlfriend and went like walking around Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn because I just like didn't want to. It was a little bit different because I didn't know if I was going to get like drummed out of the industry, <laughs> depending <laughs> on like what the reaction was. But but definitely like what we I was like, let's just let's just like go for a walk and not, uh, you know not and it wasn't like twitter was not as i wasn't on twitter at the time and stuff like that but i think it was better to to just go take a breather uh, all right i guess you convinced me we'll we'll find some we'll find some hike to do um mm. because that was funny when peak performance what came out that was i still laugh about that on the treadmill we're not going to use I our phones and then two minutes later it's like on the <laughs> phone so. you know what the only thing funnier than that is we're going to go there Dave, about that time in the gym together is we're in a freaking Weston in Boston. And like, there are people, you know, doing their Joe Galloway walk run program and Steve like freaking whips his shirt off and is running like four fifteen pace 800 on a treadmill. <laughs> so like Steve's staring at me, laughing at me, looking at my phone and I'm like, I'm not him. Looking to the gym like there's this alien. I think like three people left. So, <laughs> yeah, that's why we can't be on treadmills, but we were stuck in um, stuck in <laughs> Boston. So uh, fun times. But this time we'll be outside and not uh, not stuck on treadmills. You know, it, it's interesting because it's like it, it's like the modern problem is like, how do you how do you deal with some of this stuff? And, uh, you know, listening to your story, Dave, it kind of really resonates with me a lot because like my mind goes to like, oh, this is awesome. Like, just like, you know, we talk about in the passion paradox and as you talk about in range, like you're, you're kind of following your interests. Right. Um, but what's really cool about your story is like, you, you seem to have this like incredible ability to just like step away and just be like, all right, I'm going to go from like senior writer at sports illustrated down, down to this, which, you know, takes a lot of, um, confidence but also takes a lot of like not having the the ego to uh you know um almost take the 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 hit right 
I've noticed some of my colleagues get sort of trapped in that, though, right? Because, like, sometimes people would move and they would negotiate. It's like their salary, you know, if they were going from SI to ESPN or whatever, they would have, just like as an example, because that, that happened a lot, <laughs> um, they would, like, the salary negotiation would be done, but, like, then they would be negotiating if they would be senior, going from senior writer to senior writer or senior writer to reporter. And to me, like, when I went to ProPublica, I'm like, they can call me, like, you know, the help for all I care. Like it doesn't, that just doesn't affect anything you do really, you know? So actually after the A-Rod story came out, I went to ProPublica as an intern. So then I got hired based on that story. I became a staff writer at SI, got out of fact checking and then went to ProPublica to be an intern. And so, you know, I had a cover story that came out like maybe, maybe the week before I went to be an intern on dietary supplements actually. And that next day I was doing, I was like photocopying stuff for Michael Gray Bell, who's, who's still a reporter there. And like, that's a beautiful story. So like you have this book, the New York Times bestseller, the rest of it is like telling people he's reading and you're doing photocopies. But, but it was, it was, it was awesome. I mean, like I learned so much at that internship and, and not to mention that's what led to them, you know, later hiring me and offering to hire me, which of course was like good professionally also, um, the, you know, that they were, that I had other job offers and stuff, but it was great, you know, and, and so actually specifically, I remember that the, the I was scanning in stuff that had to do with like money allocations from the stimulus bill. And in doing that, I realized that like a ton of it was going to this like one very lightly populated place in the state of Washington. And that led to this story about, you know, a nuclear facility that was getting all this money for these jobs that were exposing guys to beryllium and they were getting these horrible diseases. And it was just like awesome, you know, and I just much more focused on what am I going to learn from this? And, and I'll, I'll figure out like the older I've gotten, the less I like do long-term sort of goal setting because it's just, it's just not, I guess I just like pivot, um, you know, a lot more from like one thing, one thing to the next sort of, and, and you know, and I've also like just gotten, gotten lucky with it um, also, but, but I just see a lot of people get sort of handcuffed by the titles. Yeah. Um, so I think for, for listeners to make a pretty clear takeaway that I think Dave, Dave clearly has figured out how to do for himself is let let your interests drive you, not not the title. Um, some of my favorite research is this study that shows that um, once you're above something like $75,000, perhaps it's so adjusted geographically for cost of living, but once you're above a certain income, you don't really need any more money to be happy. So like meet your basic needs for sure then once you met those basic needs like let, let, let your interest be the driver not some external goal it's the external title um because again like I, I i always come back to this in myself and some of the entrepreneurs i coaches if you think about your goal as some title and you feel like your shoulders kind of like get tense that's tightness that's constriction that's not good if you just say like wow like what how do i want to spend my time what things am i interested in Again, that's much more expansive, um, and it's just a healthier way to go about it. I also think you guys in the book write about like interest in a way that's deeper than sort of the typical um, advice. Like, there's a part in the book where you talk about path dependence, um, and you know, it th- this idea that that people sort of get locked into a path because they've started down it. Um, and so I, I think it's sort of a facet of like the sunk cost fallacy, like, well, I've started down this road, so I just sort of have to stick with it. Whereas, you know, I think interest, I think, I think like demonstrably, and there's interesting research on this interest is something that we learn from experiencing and reflecting, not something that we can just purely introspect without having experiences. 
Um, so I think that's a really neat section of the book that's not just, you know, it's not just this like personality quiz advice of just like sit down, think about what you're interested in and follow it. And, that, and that's part of this whole nuancing of, of superficial advice about passion that I think you guys address uh, and, that, and that I really enjoy. Yeah, Steve, Steve wrote a killer line in that section of the book. Um, I forgot what it, Steve, if this is just like in your head or if you saw some study, but basically like we think that like what we're interested in, we then go pay attention to, but it's actually the opposite. Like what you pay attention to, you become interested in. Mm. So like the best advice there is like, be curious, pay attention. Yeah, totally. Totally. And, and wait, I have a question I want to ask you guys before I forget it. What did you find, you know, like writer to writer and all this? What, what, what was the most difficult part of the book to write for you guys? Oh. And by writing, like organize, decide to include, organize any, any of those things. Hmm. Now you're going to force us to make us think. Um I don't know, Brad. Does anything come to come to mind? I'm trying to think of like, you know, Brad and I uh, being our second book, like going into it, I thought we'd argue over like what to keep and what to get rid of a lot more than than we do. Um, but there's only been a handful of sections in each book where we've actually like gone back and forth on on like whether to keep it, which is I don't know. Yeah. Surprising. I, but I think I, I've got one, Steve. So I think that like it's this general theme. Um, and hopefully, we struck a good middle ground. Um, so let me give let me give you some context. So when we started thinking about the actual writing of the book, uh, two things happened. Sebastian Younger's Tribe had kind of come out, and Steve mm-hmm. and I had both read it. And then we also saw the movie Whiplash. Mm-hmm. And what both Tribe and Whiplash have in common is there there is little to no white space. Like reading Sebastian Younger's book, like every single page, it was like a nonfiction thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he's not even like he's telling a story. Yes, it's like a think book, but it read like a thriller. It was very tight. And then that movie Whiplash, same thing. Like there is there is zero white space in that movie. And we kind of agreed that peak performance told a lot of stories, uh, followed the arc of a more traditional pop science. Right here's some here's some science here's some stories. Here's a little bit of our opinion. In this book, we wanted to try to get down to key points and what what we were pointing at is true as quickly as possible. But I think the tension in this book was Steve being a trained scientist, me not, wanting to include more science, mm-hmm. and me wanting to say, like, enough is enough. Um, and that only happened in a few instances. There's one instance in the book uh, that talks about a disorder called HSAM. And I'm, I'm, Steve, what does it stand for? I'm already forgetting uh i forgot off the top of my head <laughs> so so i can yeah so i can tell you that i don't want to include it steve did and, and it's basically the disorder where a photographic memory yeah. and this is in the section of the book about moving on from a passion and what we talked about there is the importance of like not letting your identity get caught up in any one story mm-hmm. and owning your story and people with hsam because they have photographic memories they can't edit their stories so if you break up with someone that person that you once loved like a week later, like, oh, I'm so much better without this person. And then over time, you adjust your story. But if you have HSAM, like, you can adjust that story. So if you got your heart broken and it sucked, like, you're always going to remember how much it actually sucked. And we use that as an example of, like, those individuals, they really struggle with moving on from things because you can't edit the story. So if you don't have HSAM, like, you do edit your story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and readers will see, there's probably, like, a two- or three-page section on that disorder 
And I was of the opinion that, hey, we made our point. We don't need to keep it. Steve was of the opinion, let's keep it. And when we have those disagreements, um, if we can't resolve them over a few days, generally just leave that up to our editor. And um, our editor said, keep it. Hope it's there. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, that, that was a good one because uh, uh, we did argue back and forth over that um, a little bit. And I think I, I think that's what's the interesting thing about uh, co-authoring a book is like we both have our different preferences and we both have like different things we're looking at and looking uh, to get out of a book, right? So when I'm writing, like I like those scientific explanations or like those details of like, oh, this is how it works, right? Um, and I, I think one thing that like I remember from peak performance is we had these performance practice sections and actually Brad and I initially didn't want any of that stuff because it's like, this is lame. Like this doesn't contribute to the story at all. Like these are just some things to do. Right. But our, um, our, our agent was like, no, you need to do this. You need to put these in. And it turns out that like people found those really valuable, which is fantastic and great. So I think it's important to remember when you're writing things like it's it's you know it's it, people get attached to different things. So it's important to not get stuck in your head and be like, "Oh, this is the worst thing ever" when someone else could find it super valuable. Yeah, I think there that example in particular um for the writing geeks listening, that's like prime example of um cursive knowledge, which is like mm-hmm. Steve and I have so much knowledge on this topic why why on earth would we want a summary with some practices at the end of the chapter like we, we know this stuff like the back of our hand so we would just assume that that would be boring reading for other people right. but other people haven't spent two years researching this topic right so actually like there's the research i think it's like 17 times you hear something before you internalize it so if you're writing for someone else like yeah put those passion practice like put the practices in over and over again because that's how you learn um, so it's kind of funny. Like I catch myself like never wanting to include those in my books, but then liking when other authors have them in theirs. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um, and, and I want to ask about a specific section too, because one of my favorite sections of the book, and, and I was curious if, if you guys haggled about deciding to include it or not was where you advise people to keep death at the forefront of their mind. Um, which is really interesting. And I thought a really powerful, uh, a section maybe you can explain a little and I'd be curious how if, if you haggled over including that or not yeah so we, we didn't haggle over including or not but we haggled over how much to write about it and how much to emphasize it for the sole reason is it's it's kind of kind of a de- depressing you know topic to take on exactly. Yeah, totally. Right? I mean, you know, I I remember going back and forth with Brad several times on like, well, let's take this detail out or let's shorten this up or expand this because it's it's it it was easy to like get this like depressed almost like emotional feel while we're, while we're reading it and knowing that someone reading it for the first time might feel this this to the uh, you know, nth degree. So, but you know, we we both felt pretty strongly that it was a it was a powerful uh, thing, right? And I think what what brought this to mind to both of us is I think sometime around this time, maybe a little before we wrote the book, we both read uh, the book "When Breath Becomes Air," which uh-huh. is a, a powerful book about you know dying. 
Um, and it both, it moved both of us to such a degree and made us, you know, kind of, uh, have that perspective shift that we were like, no, it's, you know, it's one of the tools that, that you can use and that is incredibly valuable. Yeah. Yeah. To, to, to keep perspective. And I, and I think Steve, I told you a little bit about this and it immediately reminded me cause I was, I minored in astronomy and, and, you know, partly cause I, I was reading when I was younger, some of Carl Sagan's writing and, and, you know, just found him to be a fascinating guy. And one of the things that it reminded me of um, in a biography I read of him was that he had some sort of condition where like his esophagus would constrict or something. I can't remember the name of it, but he would like every once in a while come very close to choking on something he was eating because of that. Um, And in the biography, it's kind of cast as this thing that's always hanging over him where he has all this stuff he wants to do and all this stuff he's curious about and wants to learn. And he's constantly like, this thing could get me anytime. So I need to get on this stuff I want to do and learn. And one of the things he wanted to promote was a search for um, extraterrestrial uh, life. I don't know if it's well known or not, but he wrote the movie Contact also. Um, And he works really hard to get funding for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence SETI, which is set up these huge radio telescopes and we, you know, we listen for radio signals and, and after all this work he did to lobby for it and get it funded, um, you know, there's like this grand opening and everything. And he's the first person they allow to like sit down and put the headphones on and like listen to the radio signal. And he goes and does that, you know, for like two minutes and like leaves and never comes back. Um, because like that's, he wanted the project going and, you know, he wanted to know, the answers, but he, that's not how he wanted to spend his time. Um, and so I just thought he was kind of a fascinating guy who clearly had this, this, you know, remembering his mortality really hanging over him in this very visceral way and decided, uh, you know, to, to spend his time pursuing the things he was really curious about, even when that sort of looked a little gauche, like him, you know, not, not putting in sort of the, the work on the ground in a project that he got, he got funded. <laughs> Yeah, it's a powerful thing that that um, memento mori, right? As you wrote in an email to us, like just reflecting on like it's, there's, there's limited time here. Um, I think initially we talked about stoic visualization, and we ended up replacing parts of that with um, the Buddhist practice of the five remembrances on death and dying. Mm-hmm. And um, that that call was made again, sim- similar to what Steve said, that like we. We didn't want it to take on too much of a negative tone because it's actually meant to be more empowering, which is like, hey, you've got this one life. Go use it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we also didn't want to be like so prescriptive. on like, this is the thing to do, yeah. because for some people, um, like stoic negative visualization, that can just put you in a really bad mood. And if that's mm-hmm. the case, then like, don't do it. Or maybe you need to do it with the help of a therapist. I don't know. Um, so we went a little bit broader. I know my, my practice is trying to read. Uh, like at least one memoir about death and dying every year. Mm-hmm. And I come out of those memoirs and I'm just like so focused in, in what matters becomes so clear. Um, so like there's Atul Gwande's Being Mortal, When Breath Becomes Air. Nina Riggs wrote a beautiful book called The Bright Hour. I read books like that and I'm just like, okay, like I, <laughs> as I said, things just become clear. Yeah, no, and I, I love that part of the book because it, again, it, it sounds like a downer to talk about, but I, it's part of life, right? Um, it's and, and a part of life that we typically, I think, try to move away from our view to the extent possible. Um, but it's an important part of life, and I, and there's an empowering aspect to it, right? Like, um, and and I and I think you guys, I, I'm just glad that you guys touched on that. That was a very powerful part of the book, and and a useful 
uh, useful reminder. So like, again, I, I felt like a lot of the book was sort of doing the the exercise like the, the it wasn't a book where I, I like read it and then went and did the stuff it was like reading the book was in many cases doing the stuff um like thinking about the things i was supposed to think about and so i found that it to be like very useful in that way because it was like the act of reading the book in, engaged me in a lot of the habits of mind that the book was telling me were important oh man thanks it's wonderful to hear yeah that's fantastic dave i mean it's it's like you know um you never know how the how a book will be uh, taken or read or utilized or whatever until it uh, you start to get the feedback. So coming from someone like yourself, who I know is well versed in all this stuff, that uh, means a lot. And and we we still never know, right? I always think actually one thing that's helpful with perspective is like every once in a while I'll read a a writer. Most recently, this woman Rachel Ingalls, who like is a genius, and say gosh, they're a genius and they haven't gotten their due. You know, some of this is just luck. <laughs> um, and I think that's sometimes helpful for perspective too. So, so Dave, before we wrap up, I, I want to know um, what, what, what like one or two things and in that reading process that you're kind of grappling with it and going through the exercise, did, did anything come about that you're doing differently now or, or that you're doubling down on? Brad, can you, can you say that again? You broke up a little bit where you were saying that. I heard you say du- doubling down on, um, yeah, but I missed a little bit before. that reading process um, where you're grappling with these ideas, is there anything that you're now doing different as a result or, or that you're doubling down on that you'd already been doing? Dude, I'm, I'm totally sorry. I, I'm, I'm I, got, I got it. I got it. I'll translate. Sorry, Brad's okay. mic is breaking up. Um, I think what Brad was saying is that um, – through the reading process of the book, is there anything that stuck out as something that you're doing differently or maybe doubling down on um, that you took away? Yeah, I think, um, well, one of the reasons I like that section about um, mortality is because that is a kind of thinking that I'm somewhat inclined to, but had kind of gotten away from. Um, And I think it reminded me of that. Uh, Also, the 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 path dependency um where you wrote about path dependency um and like frequently i'm i'm somewhat down a path and feel like it's funneling me in a clear direction but maybe that's not actually the direction i most want to go um and so it just kind of prompted me to take stock of um you know of those steps and 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 sort of where i'm headed and and think about if it's if it's where i want to go Um, but more than anything, I think the judging, you know, there's some, there's some things, honestly, I have some goals for, for skills I want to develop that don't have much to do with anything that I've been doing. Um, and I think that can you, can you give a preview of one of those? I mean, for example, one would be like fiction writing. Mm. Um, and that's something where I'm not comfortable and, uh, you know, I'm not established and, so I have to be willing to go from doing things that I know I have some competence at to doing things I don't know if I have any competence at. Um, and I think that there was a part of the book that talks about judging yourself against yourself um, as opposed to sort of looking around at what all these other people have and, and where they are and, and you know how they've gotten to where they are in those things. And I think that's just something that's very in the forefront of my mind right now as I'm wanting to um, develop some some skills that I haven't developed very well that in many ways would feel like 
why the heck would you go and do that instead of going down this like more fruitful path that's pretty clear for you? Um, so that, and also the perspective taking, um, there, there was even a part of the book where I think you wrote like reading this and thinking about this, uh, helps you help you take, you know, get perspective. Um, and so that, but, but definitely the judging yourself against yourself. Uh, I think that's, is actually really important, but also really rare and, and not so easy. And that's just very forefront of my mind right now as I'm thinking about doing something that objectively, like maybe looks a little dumb, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, but at, at the same time, it's like freeing, right? I think, you know, tying this up, maybe like it's easy to get in that path dependency where we don't do things that are outside of our competencies, right? I mean, yeah. I, I remember when Brad and I first started working on, on peak performance, like our, I would say the gap between our, both of our strengths and weaknesses were, was much, much greater. Like Brad was a much, uh, much better writer than I was at the time. Um, and like, I was probably more in the weeds on science than Brad was at the time. Um, so it was easy to like, feel almost like inferior or like not like have the confidence to have like this sort of uh competency by you so it's like that that kind of stuff can can hold you back and keep you stuck in in that path and i think that's what happens to a lot of people who maybe don't have your ability dave to jump around <laughs> to different jobs without uh you know having that fear of of taking that leap yeah you know and and, and one other thing that that actually I know I'm picking a couple things here and Brad, you asked for one, but, um, you know, hopefully that's a testament to that stuff stuck with me, um, from the book, but I got like super into Duke Ellington a couple years ago and, and he has, yeah, this- I love that part of your book, by the way. Um, I started listening to him as a result. <laughs> Thanks. I can, I can recommend some cool stuff to show his range. Uh, cause I think the stuff that's the most innovative and creative is not the stuff he's very well known for, interestingly, but, um, he has this quote I love where uh, he said, you know, I don't need time. I need a deadline because he was known for like he could have a commission for months. And and until someone was like, yeah, the show's on tonight, that's like when he'd start composing it, stuff like that. Um, and I'm totally not like that. Like, I'm definitely I don't need that extra pressure. Like, I'll, I'll put it on myself. Um, and there was a part of the book, I think, like sort of maybe midway or, or maybe no, probably earlier than that, where you talk about. Um, strategies, like pretty concrete strategies for relieving pressure in different scenarios, whether that's how you experiment with some new interest from your job or, or other, other ways. And, and as I think about having another book coming out, um, and you know, not knowing how it'll go, um, I'll, I don't have a problem with feeling enough pressure, right? The problem will be relieving some of the pressure. And so I marked up some of those parts of the book just cause I planned like maybe when my book's coming out to sort of go back to that um, and, and look over that part again. So I, I think that's a, that's an area where there's some, I took some practical stuff that I'm planning on, uh, rereading when my own book is coming out. Awesome. No, that's really cool. So we've been going on for an hour and change now, so we don't want to keep you too long, Dave, but I, I mean, this has been a really fun and interesting conversation. Um, it's just cool to hear, uh, again, from someone who's uh, has such a diverse um, interest and has, uh, you know, written such interesting things, including your next book, which is uh, fascinating um, to just kind of hear what you took away from uh, the passion paradox, because it's, you know, as I said, like you never know until the, the baby comes 
uh, what it's going to be like. So appreciate uh, appreciate you taking the time, Dave. My pleasure. And, and you know, I think people should know it's like a very interactive book. Like you're meant, I think you're meant to think while you're going through it. Um, and, and it sort of it has there's a lot of thought prompts, and that, I, I like that because uh, then the sort of the thinking and the discussions continue after you close the book. So I, that's the kind of thing I enjoy. Thanks so much, Dave. Um, we appreciate the kind words and, and appreciate you taking the time to keep the conversation going in this form. Anytime. And um, I'm not sure if we're still like recording or not, but I'm happy to help, you know, 